Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And I have heard it said that if you are a woman and you have a body, it is likely that you struggle with your body. And I think there's never been a truer thing said about body acceptance, especially for women. But it's also something that is really beginning to impact men. And to talk about body acceptance and how that dovetails with our most recent conversation on Overeaters Anonymous. I have again with me today, Dr. Frank Patty. Hi, Dr. Patty. It's so good to see you again. Hello, Sheila. Another party. Yes, exactly. And Paula is also joining us today. Hi, Paula. It's really good to see you. Thanks for inviting me. Because our listeners are familiar with Dr. Patty and he has talked so eloquently about the benefit of Overeaters Anonymous, would you just give us a little bit of the background about why you're passionate around the issue of body acceptance? Sure. I come from a family of ectomorphs and athletes, and I am probably naturally supposed to be an ectomorph, but I am not an athlete. My younger brother and sister, we're all in our mid-60s. They're still the size they were in high school and still wear some of their high school clothes. They've always been active. My parents were slim. All of my extended family, with one exception, was slim. And I can remember clearly being in fifth grade and my father saying to my mother, Paula has a little tummy. We should do something about that. And so they put me in swim team where I always came in last. And then by the time I got to high school, I was 5'10 and not a little thing. And of course, in high school, and I graduated from high school in 1974. So I don't know if things have gotten better, worse, or the same, but the ideal was cheerleaders. I was not cheerleader sized or cheerleader shaped or cheerleader graceful or any of that. So I suspect that most of my experience was exactly the same as my peers. I look back and I think, well, there couldn't have been more than about three popular kids. We just all thought that they were the norm and we weren't. But by the time I was in college, I had actually had a young man who I expressed interest in tell me he couldn't be interested in me because I was overweight, which is a pity because I was actually a normal body weight, but I was kind of on the brink, right? Just out of a normal body rate. And by then I had figured that I was a fat feminist bitch and no one would have me. So I married in graduate school to a man who thought I was beautiful and I was very fortunate in that respect. But by then the damage was done and I was well on my way to being definitely 80, 90 pounds overweight because the comfort that worked for me more than anything else was food. I know that lots of people turn to drugs or alcohol or sex or gambling And some days I wish that had been me because the body image combined with the food as a substance really was a perfect storm. Well, I'm so, first of all, you've touched on so many aspects of body acceptance that I think are so important for our community to hear. The messages that young girls receive are so important. They are more important than messages you'll see receive at any time in your adulthood, because for some reason, we seize on those remarks when we are trying to form our sense of identity. Did you ever go back to the people who said those remarks to you, who talked to you about your body and actually say, this was the impact that it had on me. And for the rest of my life, I have struggled with that. 
I was very fortunate that my parents were lavishly loving people. And by and large, I grew up in a healthy family. So by the time I was in college, my dad wanted me to go see a therapist because of my overweight, which I wasn't actually just overweight for my family. And the therapist explained to my parents that the problem wasn't my weight. The problem was the family dynamic about my weight. And that continued for some years. While I was in college, I lived at home. And at one point, my dad did what I think uh, makes sense to me now, but horrified me then. He padlocked the pantry and the refrigerator. Now, understand my brother, who is the youngest of three, by sixth grade was drinking heavily. So my dad also locked up the liquor cabinet. Uh, my brother's now 25 years, clean and sober. Ad- addicts fall out on their heads if you just shake my family tree, we're everywhere. And so, you know, I look back and I thought that was a terrible horror. And I used to tell it, all parents of addicts do, trying to control the situation. But by the time I was in graduate school and not too long after that, my parents and I had some conversations. And by then I had an understanding of recovery and addiction. So that was healed long before I hit 30. Other people's remarks, I have just never gone back to do anything about that. There's no going back, but there is going forward. So if you'll indulge me, I'll tell you a little story. I'd love it. I'm now at a normal body weight. Um, I'm 67. So I've missed my window for perfection by about 40 years, but um, I'm happy with how I look. I mean, I look in the mirror and I've had two 10 and a half pound babies. And so my belly and my abdomen is not magazine worthy. But I I look at myself naked in the mirror and I think, man, I look good. Mm. And if you had told me 5, 10, 15 years ago that I would ever think that, I would have said, have you met me? The other day, about a month or so ago, I was walking into the my YMCA to meet with my trainer and I was headed toward the desk. And over in the corner where the old guys sit and solve the problems of the world, one old man said quite loudly, well, there's a tall one, which isn't unkind particularly, but I turned and said in my, I have to say it, my preacher voice, which meant it echoed down the hall. I said, I know I'm tall. I have a mirror. You have no business making comments about my body. And the whole place went dead still. His friend said, well, he didn't mean anything by it. Mm -hmm. I said, yes, he did. Mm -hmm. It's inappropriate. He has no business doing that. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Patty. Then I was done. I walked away. Yeah. What what Paul is talking about is almost this generational shift. I am so buoyed by how Gen Z has really championed body acceptance and said, we are going to eat properly. We're going to nourish ourselves. And it is not your place to be commenting on our bodies. What do different generations have to learn about this issue around their very stark comments regarding people's appearance. One of the main points, and if listeners take nothing home from them today, is that regarding your body, like its only purpose is to look a particular way, is missing the magnificence that the body is. I mean, even the fact that many of us can walk without falling that can stand upright. You know, we do so many things. I have a mom who had multiple sclerosis, and that was the first time where I noticed that being able to feed yourself is a gift. 
because it was a neurological disorder, speech became a challenge. There are so many things that our bodies do. And I say push back against the automatic thoughts that our only value is in how other people rate us. Yeah. Like, like the group of octogenarians at the YWCA that have yeah. this, un, this unfiltered privilege to talk about how someone looks as the totality of who they are, not on my watch. Let, let's talk about when people begin to notice these differences between themselves. I have this very stark memory of not really paying attention to my body compared to other people because I grew up in a rural area riding horses and being the bat boy and I was very physical. Um, but in junior high, I remember somebody commenting on the size of my arms. And it was the first time I'd ever thought about my body. I then raised a daughter who at four years old, I was in the checkout line with her at the grocery store, and she was trying to contort her body into a pose. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I want to look like that. She was noticing on a magazine cover another woman's body and reflecting. So is our awareness about our body image, does it come at different times in our development? And is it being sped up or girls younger and younger beginning to notice and be critical of their own image. Paula, what's your thought on that? Oh, I have way more than one thought. <laughs> first time for everything, Paula. Yeah, I know, <laughs> right? Uh, well, I think, first of all, we need to acknowledge a sort of biological reality. And in my very unscientific and uneducated way, I think our biology is that in general, humans are prone toward procreation and that in general, the lizard brain of a woman is looking for a man who will be healthy and strong to feed and care for her family. And the lizard brain of a man is looking for a woman who will create healthy, beautiful children. I think it's natural for women to believe that their appearance is primary because there's a biological drive toward that. Mm. What we don't seem to understand is that the variety of that is astonishing. I, I was well into my 40s before I realized that my conviction that I was unattractive to men because I was fat could not really be factual because I looked at all kinds of overweight women married to normal sized men mm. who obviously loved them. And that being a few pounds or even 50 or 80 pounds overweight did not make a woman unattractive to a man. And I remember thinking, I really can't make sense of that because my brain is so locked into that there is only one way to look good. Hmm. Also, I think our culture correctly emphasizes health. And Frank's better at this part of it than I am, but... I think we would agree that body acceptance does not mean it's okay to weigh 350 pounds. Mm -hmm. That's not healthy. But not accepting and loving your 350 pound body isn't going to help you. Nothing good comes from that. Because as he just said, you are not your body. You bring lots of other gifts. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. And, and Frank, 
I know that the notion of loving and accepting our bodies is really hard for people. So is it fair to say that sort of body acceptance is challenging for people who actually do have the clinical version of gender dysphoria? Gender dysphoria is the um, significant and profound discomfort presenting in or being seen as the gender assigned at birth, which is why you see so many people with gender dysphoria wearing multiple layers to conceal curves, mm -hmm. the secondary sex characteristic of an estrogen-based puberty. Mm -hmm. um, this whole idea, you know, public enemy number one in this conversation is compare and despair. Yeah. Asking yourself, you know, are you good enough? Are you lovable? Are you worthy? You know, it is unkind to say to our gender dysphoric um, siblings on this planet, we're all siblings, uh, that you should just learn to love the body you're in. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we wouldn't say that to somebody with a cleft palate. We wouldn't say that to somebody with other anomalies. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is people with gender dysphoria represent a 41% suicide rate. Yeah. And when they get to transition and live as their affirmed self, their suicide rate drops to about 8 or 9%, which yeah. is in the realm of the general population. Once someone has transitioned, if they're multiple hundred pounds overweight, they have this dilemma to love and accept the body that they've transitioned into and move toward a healthy body weight, not for aesthetics, but for health. But there are so many people putting off going out of the house, let alone to the reunion or to the grocery store or shopping for clothes because of their weight and they're missing today. You know, we talked a lot about so much of this is formed in a child's mind around the the inability to accept themselves because of other people's gaze and other people's comments. So where do we correct that and where does the validation actually come from? People that are that are naturally thin and happen to be cisgender and heterosexual grow up from little up affirming themselves. Now, there's this bully on the playground called social media and advertising that gives us images that, you know, you are not okay, but if you buy our product, um, you might be a little closer to mm -hmm. keep you addicted to buying, whether it's their brand of fragrance or, or what, whatever it is. I've heard that people, and Paul is the world traveler among us, that there are people in other areas on the globe that think Americans smell like soap because we've so been sold this line that if you don't smell like, I don't know, potpourri, there's something wrong with you. Hmm. There's all, the, And then they sell you the cure by, by this product. I think social media has done a lot of damage to people, regardless of their upbringing, because people can be intentionally cruel behind the safety of a keyboard. Yeah. So I'm wondering if I can ask Frank a question. Sure. Frank, I think there comes a point where we see bullying, you know, starting in elementary school and right through junior high and high school about all kinds of things. And I wonder if some of what we're talking about is a particular slice of 
how when we begin to experience discomfort, the discomfort of preteen and puberty, we're looking for safety. And the safest place to be is inside the circle. In order to be sure you're inside the circle, you have to clearly identify who is outside the circle. So kids make fun of anything, freckles, red hair, being too short, being too tall, not having the right clothes, not having the right brand of sneakers. There's just always bloody something. And I think that's preemptive to make them feel Like if somebody else is wrong and bad, then I'm going to be better. Not to mention whatever they grow up in their house with in terms of criticism. That was a question, Frank, in case you couldn't tell. (laughs) For the punctuation. You know, there's a there's a gifted psychologist from the 1960s called Timothy Leary. Now, Timothy Leary is mostly known for his use with psychedelic drugs. But before his LSD phase, Dr. Leary boiled down all human behavior to one of two motivators, to increase self-esteem or to reduce anxiety. So if you're feeling less than terrific, if you can point out how the kid next to you is somehow worse, you feel better. And that makes people easily manipulatable. You know, doctor, um, we were talking on our recent podcast around Overeaters Anonymous about how the self-esteem depleting process often accompanies all of these failed diet attempts. So when you're talking about OA and even in your own journey, Paula, how did OA help contribute to your recovery for body acceptance? I will never forget walking into an OA meeting And someone was reading something out of some book, and I can't remember what book it was or what exactly they were saying, but the general message was, you have a disease you cannot control. It's not your fault. And the fact that the whole world is telling you that all you need to do is find the right diet is a lie. And I have been on nutty diets and healthy diets. I'm a three-time washout from Weight Watchers. And Weight Watchers is a brilliant program. It's healthy, it's it's, um, sane, but it doesn't account for the fact that a compulsive overeater is not assuaged by enough food, a healthy amount of food or the right kinds of food. It's a much more complicated thing. And I learned that I eat the way an alcoholic drinks and no one would say to an alcoholic, well, why can't you just have one drink? Mm-hmm. Right. Just yeah. stop having so much to drink. Just have one drink mm-hmm. when we go out. And that was sort of the little light bulb that went off. And that is I guess, related to improving my self-esteem and absolutely assuaging my anxiety. I don't know that I believed it when I heard it, but I wanted it to be true. And it looked like other people in the room lived as if it was true. And I wanted some of that. You've also been quoted as saying that body unacceptance is an example of faulty thinking. What do you mean by that? Um, yes, it is. it is a result of, of faulty thinking. If you think about it, you know, the sort of on button that happens in the brains of people who are compelled to overeat. It's been really interesting because we've had some neurologists on this who have talked to us just about 
the flood of different hormones in those bodies, they can see it on the MRI machine. There's a different metabolic process that is going on in overeaters' heads and their bodies than it, than is going on in the body of a person who can stop. And so, Patty, I thought it was really interesting just to actually come clean with the fact that all of our bodies are made differently and some of us are much more vulnerable to these machinations that are going to make us unable to quit certain substances. And for some people, it's sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Patty was talking to us about his absolute knots, those foods that he knows triggers him into overeating. Have you also had to make a list of your own foods that do the same thing to you? I have. People call them by a variety of names, but the one I like best is my alcoholic foods. Uh-huh. And what are yours? Sugar, white flour. I have some things that I really kind of have to mind my own business about, but recreational sugar, uh, white flour of any kind. So Mm -hmm. gluten-free isn't an answer for me because white flour, even if it comes from rice, is probably anything with a high glycemic index. Mm -hmm. But I heard the other, somebody say the other day, it's not just recreational sugar that's a problem for me. It's recreational eating. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I have to be careful about all kinds of things. That was why Weight Watchers became a struggle for me because they didn't really put any limits on fruit Mm. or brown rice or things that don't generally trigger people. Yeah. But I personally am also triggered by quantity. Uh Uh-huh. I want a lot to eat. So I have to mind my P's and Q's around quantity as well. Do you also do what Dr. Patty does, which is measure out your food so that you're well aware of the serving size that you're getting? Yes. In fact, I learned a lot of what I currently do from a workshop that Frank did about the most important thing I have to do is detach my eating from my feelings. And this is more difficult than people recognize. Mm -hmm. So I commit what I'm going to eat that day to someone else usually in an email in the morning, sometimes the night before. And then that's what I eat because it's really important that I don't come to my dinner and say to myself, gosh, what do I feel like eating? Even Mm -hmm. if I'm going to choose between chicken and fish and asparagus and applesauce, all healthy things that are not going to trigger me, I need to not be asking myself, what do I feel like eating? So really good point. If I, if I planned to eat chicken, tonight, then I'm going to eat chicken. Um, If I get to my refrigerator and realize the chicken is rotten, then I will text my sponsor and say, oops, I guess I'm eating fish. So you're actually saying it out loud to solidify your plan. I I don't, I don't make, that's really interesting. I don't make independent decisions about my eating. Um, Dr. Patty and I were talking about that when you're an alcoholic, you can abstain from alcohol, but when you're uh, an overeater, you cannot abstain from food. And so was this plan, this portion plan, this commitment to what you're going to eat part of your overall acceptance of this is the body I have, this is how I fuel it, and this is how I actually become a healthier version of myself? Did it all work together? Because it sounds like it's multifaceted. It's not just doing the psychological work about accepting your body. It's also having enough feedback around eating healthy that you begin to get the self-esteem and the lack of shame around eating that allows you to accept your body. 
Well, I don't know if Frank talked to you about part of the recovery program uh, depends on a higher power. And for a lot of people, that is a religious concept or a spiritual concept. Um, it is a spiritual program, although people could certainly be an atheist. There's a lot of ways of understanding what constitutes a higher power. And you really probably don't want me to get off on theology because we don't have that much time. Mm-hmm. But it simplifies things when I understand that I can't control this, so I need help. And I get help from other people, from some of my spiritual practices, from listening to other people like Frank talk about what they do and how they do it. And it is complex, but it's also fairly simple because alcoholics don't abstain from drinking. They only abstain from drinking alcohol. Mm. They drink water and Coke and iced tea and orange juice. Mm-hmm. I don't abstain from food. I only abstain from food behaviors and food choices Mm -hmm. that trigger me. Mm -hmm. A lot of people like to say that Overeaters Anonymous is a harder program because, you know, you can't put the plug in the jug. You have to take the tiger out of the cage three times a day. I don't buy that. First of all, I don't think it's a contest uh, who's suffering the most, Mm -hmm. but um, alcoholics get can drink everything except alcohol. I can eat anything except sugar, white flour triggers, and I can't eat with behaviors that trigger me. So lots of alcoholics have behaviors that they have to be careful about, not just alcohol. Um, Dr. Patty, have you ever done much in terms of the work of loving kindness toward other people and ourselves with regards to body acceptance? I could see how it could be very, very helpful for people to uh, adopt a loving kindness practice toward their own bodies. There's a lot about Overeaters Anonymous that is about loving kindness. And it starts with self-care mm-hmm. and self-love. And you take a look at the many things that you do with your body. There are people that don't have mirrors in the house, or if they do, they don't look at them. They uh, just do some light housekeeping in terms of their body. And many times what we do is we work a program that includes how are your teeth? You know, how is your vision? How's your hearing? You know, how are you doing with keeping your body clean? Paula talked about when she first walked into an OA meeting. Similar for me, I walked in and they asked me, well, afterwards we go out for coffee many times and they asked, well, what brought you here? And I said, well, I'm doing a paper for school. And and people in meetings have this radar for, I bet there's more to that story. Well, the person pressed me a little bit more. He goes, yeah, but you could have done any 12-step program. Why this one? And I said, because it was Thanksgiving and I got caught eating a whole pumpkin pie, right to face, fork, fork, fork. And he asked me this very insightful question. He asked me, what else did you have? Oh, this is the place where I can tell the truth. I'm really struck by how different body acceptance is in different cultures. And even as I said in the beginning, different generations seem to be learning more kindness toward their own bodies. For instance, in African-American community, it is really lauded to have generous curves, to really be a big, strong woman. In a white culture, it's not at all lauded to have big, strong curves. How do you deal with the different body acceptance norms between different cultures? Because one would think that would be very difficult to do across the board. Paula, do you have any ideas on that? 
only that I agree that it exists, you know, from my own experience and from reading and looking, I have a number of colleagues who are from Polynesia, Samoa mm -hmm. and Tonga, completely different value system for what size a human body should be. Kind of the marching orders in this program is to only share recommendations that we've already tried and worked for us. Mm. And, and what so, are those, Frank? Um, you know, like being a guy. I, when I sponsor, I sponsor men. Mm -hmm. uh, I happen to be gay, but I sponsor all straight people. Mm. And it's it's just the way it is. Uh, but other cultures, now I was, I'm a second generation Italian American. Mm. So I work with people who have family messages of eat more because it's affluence and because that's how you praise the cook. I do share what I have, uh, but I can't share what I haven't experienced. Now, I, while I haven't sponsored anybody who identifies as anorexic or bulimic, I do identify as an exercise bulimic. Mm. So I have used exercise to try to undo the effects of how much I was eating. So mm. I relate to the anorexics and the bulimics about that. Yeah. Um, normal functional people exercise, feel and look better. I work myself into injuries and then mm. take five years off of exercise. Oh my gosh. So I, have a, I have a dis ease with my relationship to exercise, trying to undo the compulsive overeating and I can eat faster than I can run. I, I only have like five more minutes and I've just loved this conversation. I could go on forever, forever with you guys, but would you each just give a little bit of a encouragement talk to someone who might be listening, who really is ashamed of their own body and who is having a problem with overeating just around your own wisdom, what you've learned and what steps you could share with them. Paula, you want to go first? I guess the thing I would most want to say to somebody is it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault, but it belongs to you now, right? Once you're about 25 or so, this is my personal theory based on absolutely nothing. You have what you have. You have what your family gave you and you can spend the rest of your life being angry at them about it. Or you can acknowledge that this is what you've been given. This is the hand you've been dealt and it belongs to you now. But it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And as soon as you recognize that the voices in your head and in the culture that are trying to blame you are counterproductive, then you can dig into it's not your fault. It is your responsibility. And I found that to be very freeing. Dr. Patty, you want to end up with something, some encouragement? I do. Body unacceptance is an example of faulty thinking. If harshness and criticism led to acceptance, we wouldn't be recording this podcast today. Body acceptance includes accepting the fact that no matter what the disease of compulsive overeating, anorexia, or bulimia has done, it's impacted our bodies. We are impacted by that and how we show up and how we look. Mm. OA yeah. teaches us about abstinence. It's the action of refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors mm. while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. Just like Paula said, this is a very different from remaining morbidly obese and learning to accept it. What I learned as a newcomer is I didn't have to live that way. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to eat that way. I was not destined to die fat. 
but I was doing all the behaviors that would lead to that outcome. And it is not your fault. So body acceptance includes that no matter what we've done and no matter what we look like, we get to participate in our life today. Wear shorts, go dancing, put on a bathing suit, participate, and go to meetings and recover so that you can live the healthiest you possible. I love that. With that, we are going to wrap it up. We will have all the links for Overeaters Anonymous on our website. And Dr. Frank, Patty, and Paula, I so appreciate you joining us today. Thanks again for a wonderful discussion. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. It was.